0: I'm Pat,
1: and I'm Nicole Barlow,
0: and this is Soundtrack Your Life, where we talk to a guest about a soundtrack that they feel connected to. Today we have Courtney Smith, one of the hosts of the Songs My x Rune podcast. She's also a writer for Eater in Dallas, and she wrote the book Record Collecting for Girls, Unleashing Your Inner Music Nerd, One Album at a Time. Welcome, Courtney.
2: Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited to be here. This is definitely a specialty area of discussion of mine.
0: So for our listeners who don't know about Songs My Ex Ruined, uh, why don't you tell them a little bit about that podcast?
2: Yeah, it's a podcast where we have a guest on every week, and they very simply tell us the story of a relationship that went down in flames and a song that went with it, something that reminds them of that. And it is depressing sometimes and sometimes hilarious. Uh, You never know what you're going to get. It's a real mixed, mixed bag out there with people's
0: romantic lives we've had a mutual guest you had rachel brodsky um she's a friend of the podcast here as well
2: yep rachel is a great music writer who is a friend of mine too
0: oh and i plan on plugging stereo gum which he writes for in this uh episode because um one of the songs from this uh soundtrack that we're going to talk about reached number one on the billboard charts but we'll get to that in a minute so uh, today we are going to talk about the 1994 Ben Stiller film, Reality Bites. So Courtney, why are we talking about Reality Bites?
2: Well, this movie was pretty seminal for me. I grew up in the 90s. I'm from Texas. I'm from near Houston. And when it came out, oh. I was like, oh yeah, this is the future I have to look forward to. I was not quite in college yet when this <laughs> movie came out, but I was in high school. And... um It resonated with me. There's literally a dress Winona Ryder wears from the gap that I have, (laughs) that I wore. (laughs) So I had the soundtrack on CD. Um, I was obsessed with it. And it was always interesting to me because it wasn't, it was a Gen X movie without being a grunge movie. And that felt very Texas. Um, And it felt really authentic to not only people that age, but the place that it was supposed to be in and the time and the way that we talked and the way that we thought and felt. Um, And the music was all over the place. Like it was very mainstream. A lot of it wasn't even from the nineties and the stuff that was really indie was stuff I was just discovering. Like I found Juliana Hatfield because of this movie. I'd never heard of her before. So it made a big impression on me and it pushed my music taste in a direction here and
1: there. Do you still have the dress from the Gap? I have to know. No, unfortunately, no. But I do still have photos. Of
2: that. Do you still have photos of
3: myself at
1: it? All right, well, we might have to put that on uh, the IG or something just for our listeners. If you want to dig up that uh, that photo, um, I feel like you could flip that on Depop. So, oh, absolutely. I wish I had it. It's not the lace doily dress either. Sorry. <laughs>
0: No, <laughs> that's the one I was thinking.
2: No, it's the the brick red flowered one. That's like a button down dress.
0: Okay, yeah. Um, so this movie uh features quite a few um references to the gap and a lot of big gulps. A
2: lot
3: of big 7-11. gulps.
0: <laughs> so, so weird admission is I don't. So I felt like I had seen this movie. I was very confident I had seen this movie. And as I was researching this week, I started to realize that I actually had never seen Reality Bites.
2: What? <laughs>
0: really? Like, the like you know, the posters, like, burned into my memory. And I was like, Ben Affleck is in this, right? And I'm like, no. And then I was like, wait, Richard Linklater didn't direct this?
1: No, that's another Texan. So you're not you're not in the ballpark (laughs) maybe that yeah ethan hawk is confusing the issue for ryan
0: yeah so i think you know because ethan hawk was in it i just assumed it was a link ladder movie and then i saw dazed and confused and just assumed they were the same thing um you (laughs) both said in texas and both having to do with like the end of the school year kind of but so yeah it was kind of this weird sort of revelation like oh wait i have never seen this movie
1: Wow. Well, I think our elder millennial status puts us in a really weird period of time for the popularity of this movie. Because for us, I think it was less about the cultural touchstones of the film itself and the storytelling, because that wasn't really relatable if you were, you know, 12 or 13. But it it was relatable because it was blasted all over MTV. Um, the strength of the lead single, which is Stay by Lisa Loeb. They you only hear in the credits of this film, by the way. It's not actually in the film, which I thought it was. In my head, I'm like, it's definitely somewhere in there, right? It's in that, like, pivotal moment at the end where Ethan Hawk and Winona Ryder are pining for each other. No, it's not in the film. It's credits for the film. And not to, you know, lead with stay, but it's the lead single, so we might as well talk about it, right? Um, I think the present popularity of that song and how long it fucking lasted... I remember as like a preteen and teen having that on so many freaking Mm mixtapes, every slumber party and birthday party and weird sing along with your girlfriends. That was a big deal. Oh, yeah. I made my parents get me the CD after
2: that when it came out, which was after this movie because she didn't have an album.
1: Right. So important note here, programming note, Lisa Loeb did not have an album when they chose this, this song to be on the soundtrack. Lisa Loeb was Ethan Hawke's neighbor in New York. Like somewhere on Mercer Street, they were neighbors. Uh, He knew her. He passed the tape to Ben Stiller, who directed Reality Bites. And the rest is sort of history. So you can go into like a whole oral history of just day. So as a...
2: Texan who moved to New York after college like that pipeline is real and also resonated with me and every Texan in New York seemed to know each other like you find each other and you flock together it's a like weird intra-community thing so that all tracks like that he would go to bat for her that he would like our music once they were in each other's orbit that's kind of what we do it's it's a weird cultural thing it was very much very strong in the 90s and the early 2000s
0: yeah and he even tried to have her write a song for him in the movie uh the song he performs bef- uh, with his band uh before he does the violent Femmes cover mm-hmm. uh, he had asked her to write it and she wrote a demo and it just ended up not being accepted um so he he pushed hard for her to be involved with this film um, he is a bit of a tastemaker. I think he um, he directed a film a few years later called Chelsea Walls, and he had Jeff Tweedy uh, score that before, you know, Wilco really kind of became a huge band in America.
2: So here's what I always found really interesting about that, is that it's a woman, like Lisa Loeb is a woman, and men usually recommend other men, especially in the 90s, for this kind of stuff. It could have easily been... Just some indie band that Ethan Hawke wanted to be friends with that he like did this push for and put all of his cachet behind and it wasn't and just like you said same for me like this her songs are all about very from from a woman's point of view about relationships and relational issues and feeling alone feeling insecure feeling vulnerable that stuff was like another lane in the 90s, the the Lilla Fair era, when women could be very angry or women could be confessional singer-songwriters. And those were the only real two paths to success. Um, but as an angsty teen, I resonated with both of those. <laughs> they were both very appealing to me. And that's a big part of why Beyond Stay, Lisa Loeb. I have a lot of songs. Like I memorized that whole first album. I loved it all. Um, but I have thought for a long time that there's something interesting about how much people attribute her success to Ethan Hawke, or bring that up every time they talk about her, and why he would have done that is interesting to me. But also why it has to be something that she carries around. Twenty. No, 30, 30 years later. This was 1994, like almost 30 years later is also interesting and institutionalized way to discuss her.
1: Yeah, it's, I, I mean, to be frank, I didn't know any of this history behind why that song was chosen for the movie before I started researching for this podcast. To me, it was still a really great time to be, as you said, like an angsty teen girl. And to me, this really kind of weirdo left field, not traditional songcraft, chorus verse type of single in Stay is a testament to her and it's a testament to the strength of the song and, you know, her ability as a singer songwriter. No. I don't think that it would have happened um, without her. It's not something that, you know, there's no engine behind it. There's no intentionality behind it. It just hit. It hit at the right time. And people felt it, and it resonated long after the movie was a thing. Mm -hmm. Long after the movie had, like, left theaters and left consciousness. Stay, stay.
0: Yeah, and I heard that they didn't even really pick it as a single. They just kind of sent the soundtrack to different radio stations and let the programmers kind of take whatever they wanted from it. They weren't sending out a single of Stay. Mm -hmm. It just ended up being the song that resonated with... you know, these different radio uh, stations. And, you know, it's it's as organic of this, a it. moment as, you know, everything now is so manufactured, like you can't have um, a stay in 2023. Yeah, like, you know, it, it, it was like viral before viral.
1: It's the beauty of the 90s. The other interesting fact about stay that I found is that she had originally written it for someone else. She had seen that uh, Daryl Hall from Hall and Oates had a solo album coming out, and she submitted it to him, and it didn't happen. And thank God it freaking didn't, because how weird would that be? I don't think anybody would want to hear this song from Daryl Hall. In, it just wouldn't be the same. In the '90s, I don't think anybody wanted to hear from Daryl Hall at all, <laughs> like at all, right? Like there wasn't even like uh, the notion of whatever, like ironic yacht rock in 1990 yeah, that was not a thing yet. Would have been completely. <laughs> It would have completely died on the vine so happy ending for that that track
2: but it is like there's something poetic about what became the lead single for this movie being a woman's voice i mean it it mirrors the lead character being laney and it mirrors this idea of like giving women center stage um and this was an era in radio when that was uh in rock radio when that was actually happening and it didn't for a long time after that. It still isn't now. Um, and radio has become less important, but back then it was extremely important. This was a huge, 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 huge deal. People would listen to the radio all the time. They discovered music via the radio. So it was maybe even a little bit easier for someone like Elisa Loeb to break through because of all the other women's voices at the time. And that's good. I miss that. I feel like we need a little more of that in the mainstream besides just pop, pop music juggernauts.
1: Yeah, and I feel like um, it's also good to mention uh, Juliana Hatfield's contribution to this soundtrack, which is great. Yeah, I mean, this
2: is one of my favorite songs. So this is um, Spin the Bottle, which is such a great like, and teeny song. It's um, Juliana Hatfield in her most emotionally immature era as a songwriter and it's great um, because it's fun that's the thing like there's a lot of her catalog that gets really dark and really heavy um, Uh later on and very is very specific is you just can't consume it you have to really understand the path but this is before like evan dando
1: fucked her over juliana hatfield (laughs) <laughs> Wait, I don't think I know that history. Can we give like a brief high level of how? I mean, it's, it's it feels related to your podcast somehow. Am I wrong? <laughs> You're not wrong. Um, okay. Evan Dando was the singer of the Lemonheads,
2: and he and Juliana Hatfield had a thing for a long time. Um, and it was a creative partnership, maybe a romantic partnership. It's never been super clear, but they were quite intertwined and on multiple levels. And he was also a serious drug addict. So the relationship fell apart um, because of his addiction. And there are multiple songs, if not multiple albums, about her devastation coming out of that. Um, But, like, you can hear Juliana Hatfield doing the backing vocals on My Drug Buddy by Lemonheads. It's really kind of sad when you you know how that story plays out. Um, But, yeah, this is, like... In the heyday before he kind of cracked her, cracked her brain.
0: Oh, can I tell you about a hilarious uh, Juliana Hatfield tweet about Evan Dando from recent?
2: Yes, please. Yes, please.
0: Um, so Jawbreaker, the reunited Jawbreaker, has been touring, and they had lemonades on um the West Coast leg of their tour, Ooh. and I think Evan Dando might still be a serious drug addict because yeah. um, some of those shows did not go well. Oh, and uh, Jawbreaker basically kicked the lemon heads off the tour um evan dando tweeted that the guys in jawbreakers are just the guys in jawbreakers are just a bunch of pussies and oh, yeah. oh. Um, i remember this now and then juliana hatfield just tweeted jawbreaker Lemonheads, both candy bands you would think it would have worked yeah.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
0: wow
2: classy she's great <laughs> Yeah, But this is how I discovered awesome. her. She was at the time on 120 Minutes on Alternative Nation. Um, and I'm sure that's how Ben Stiller discovered her. He was not exactly known as a bastion of the underground, but he's the person that put her on this soundtrack. And he directed the video for Spin the Bottle.
1: And I think he wanted it to be the single is my my impression. Yeah, I think there's something unfortunate about, uh, I don't know, Ben Stiller's like general countenance that like makes him uncool looking because I think secretly he's actually very cool. Um, unfortunately, he just wasn't born looking like Ethan Hawke. So <laughs> he was born
0: looking like Jerry Stiller.
1: <laughs> right. Exactly. So, uh, yeah, it- I think we have to take a beat for a second to talk about how Ben Stiller's character, he wasn't intended to be played by Ben Stiller. I guess it just kind of happened. He had never really planned to be in the film, but he does play the character of Michael. And Michael is this executive producer or whatever on this fake MTV, which is hilariously called In Your Face, Uh which I did not remember. (laughs) I've seen this movie once a really long time. In Your Face is like the fake MTV because they needed to stand in for that. Because how do you talk about the 90s without the impact? of mtv right you already mentioned 120 minutes huge deal to a lot of us but it is pretty hilarious how he is he and mtv are kind of the stand-ins for selling out in this film so
2: i don't know if you know this about me but i worked at mtv in the 2000s in music programming
1: and tell us all about that <laughs> how well does this mimic very well music programming in mtv the
2: offices were very much like mtv the sort of forced whimsy of it so ben stiller had a tv show on mtv in the 90s you remember his talk right, show. show so he knew what it looked like in there and he was not like it looks like they're making fun of it they're not they accurately captured what the offices are like
0: that yeah, was and the the bastardization of of the documentary mm. Which causes the conflict in the relationship 100% like a real world spoof. Oh, yeah. it was a
1: real world promo. Yeah. The real world, like opening titles is what it gave me. Well, it's
2: really funny because at this time, like the real world debuts in 1992, and there's a huge cultural conversation really quickly about what does this mean for MTV? Because before that, they'd had late night shows or like remote control that would come on sometimes. And sometimes they play reruns that should have been on Nickelodeon, like, you know, the monkeys or whatever. But mm-hmm. this started to be when MTV shifts in a- away from 24 hours of music and towards, Oh, this stuff gets us ratings. We need to put more of this on. So the timeliness of this is like, so on point. And that becomes a conversation that, Even when I was there in the, I was there from 2000 to 2008, and I lost track of how many New York Times pieces there were bemoaning that there's no more music on MTV as they wrote about the Hills or the Osbournes or Nick and Jessica or whatever was the biggest thing. And that started way back when this was happening. So the idea that they make this movie and the script focuses on will this documentary this girl is making work on in your face mtv without ever considering (laughs) the music part of it is really interesting to me now
1: yeah there's a speech that he gives after she you know rushes out of the of the screening of the launch party of this documentary that he's cut up and edited to be like super sizzly and very like 90s real world mtv where he starts to tell her like, well, they, you know, these kids don't want to eat. It's like meatloaf. So we have to be like, oh, here comes the plane and dumb it down. And I thought that was like really interesting.
0: And then he goes, I, I think I can get rid of the Pizza Hut thing.
1: Yeah, <laughs> we'll take it, the thing and it'll be fine. Which is also such a like, I don't know, marketing guy response. Kind such of a, that.
2: totally. These are, I don't know if these conversations would have been happening at Real MTV in the 90s, but I believe they would have because they certainly were in the 2000s. I mean, it was a little bit different because by then we were segmenting MTV to be aimed at teen girls and be very much about TRL. And we'd launched MTV2 to be for men, like not teenage boys, but a little bit older men. So I wouldn't, but there was a lot of conversations like that. We'd have market research meetings all the time where they were when millennials were coming of age, explained to us that these kids have the internet and they don't just like new music. They like everything because they have access to all of it and they know so much more than you think and yada, yada. And so how do we tap into the zeitgeist of what they want? And all these just like ridiculous conversations yeah, they were definitely happening. So I imagine these might have been things that Ben Stiller heard at MTV in the 90s as well. I wouldn't be surprised. Like I think it's so much closer to the truth than people want it to be. It looks like a spoof, but it it's felt pretty not. Yeah,
1: pretty accurate to me. It didn't feel like it was bordering on parody. It felt like, "Oh yeah, a Ben Stiller was probably in that boardroom when something like this got pitched."
2: I know exactly. There's a with all the toys in his office. That was like how a lot of executives were, honestly. And there was a table in MTV News' conference room that had been there since the 90s that was like a glass top and underneath it was just like this sculpture of a bunch of pop culture stuff and you would look and, and they met in there every single day. Like it wasn't an unused artifact, it was just what it was like. It was weird and yeah, desperately trying to be cool at all times was the vibe.
0: I feel bad for Mike Ness because during in that in that little <laughs> intro, it's it's his story of my life song, and I'm sure I'm sure he's like, what What did I do to deserve no. this? Mike
2: Ness, no, he I he loved success. That guy wanted to be on MTV. He was not like this is selling out, dude. Not at all. He was ready to play the game. No. Definitely not. And also, Mike Ness had to approve that usage. I mean, he could have. Why well, was seen gonna, it? I was in
1: his day. He saw it. He was probably fine with it. He got his bag. Well,
0: honestly yeah. he his Brett Daniel and is like, I I didn't see it, but I approved it anyway.
2: <laughs>
1: <laughs> no,
0: Mike Ness. he's he's a hero of uh, where we live. We're in Orange County, California. He he's a hero legend. He's
1: always a little strong. He's here. <laughs> <laughs>
0: If you go to downtown Fullerton, they have, like, quotes of his, like, painted on walls.
1: Yeah, we don't have a lot. We've got Gwen Stefani, and we've got Mike Ness. So just (laughs) let us have what we have. It was a big deal to
2: sign a major label contract and sell out. Bigger deal in the 90s than in the other time. And Mike Ness never said no to major label money. So come on. Let's be real.
0: So uh, Chuck Klosterman kind of wrote about the film about how it's so tied to, like, the early 90s where, like, it's so, like idealistic to not sell out like mm. Ethan Hawke is an asshole but he has his ideals and Ben Stiller's Michael is this pretty you know pretty reasonably nice person yeah who has a stable job and cares um, he's a little bit misguided a little bit maybe a little too uh concerned with you know commercialism but he's painted as like this loser that she should not be with
2: yeah because he's uncool well here's the thing that we don't talk about um, or we haven't historically talked about when we talked about this concept of selling out from the 90s um to say no to things requires two things first of all someone has to have asked you like there's plenty of bands that have said i would Three. never sell out but no one ever invited you to the party so like what are you talking about you cannot rsvp no if you didn't get an invitation And second of all, there's a classism involved in that. Like, not everybody can afford to say no to money. And the people that can, like, that's what I always wondered about the backstory of Ethan Hawke's character, Troy, which, by the way, is a very fucking white bread name. Um, We hear about his dad being an alcoholic, and it's an ill, like terminally ill, but it's not clear where these ideals come from, or if he can actually afford to have them. I mean, he's working as a bartender and meeting women and playing in a band and he's the epitome of a slacker, although he doesn't exactly, I guess that's not true. Winona Ryder refers to their house as a den of slack. So it comes out, but like, how long is that feasible? How long can you go on like that? existing on the minimum amount of money and they talk about money a lot in this movie because it's people that just graduated from college working in entry-level jobs and trying to get by on very small amounts of money um but to not have any aspirations to lift yourself out of that is something in the world of music that a lot of bands who have an infinite amount of money have been able to do like I always think of REM talking about how they would never license their music to a commercial or any commercial entity to use because it changes the like soul of the music, but they will for films, um, people that they like and, you know, projects that they're into. And I think it's easy to say that while sitting on top of millions of dollars, mm-hmm. but when you move into an era where you don't have a steady income, you don't have health insurance you can't quit your day job to be a musician. If you don't ever become super successful, how do you maintain that?
1: Yeah, I always assumed that that Ethan Hobbs' character is sort of coasting on some suburban Chicago white privilege. That he's probably not grown up in any kind of poverty and doesn't really understand that struggle so it's easy to romanticize it. It's easy to glamorize it because it's not part of the fabric that made him. It's simply something that, as you said, he's kind of like idealizing, right? You can yeah. be in a-, a failing bar band called Hey, That's My Bite <laughs> when – you don't have a lot of stakes in the game and you're 23 years old in 1994, which, you know, things were a lot more affordable back from,
3: mm-hmm. yeah. And you can afford
0: to go out of state for college.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. Exactly. So the, my thing is like, it's like, okay, well, they were, they, they obviously all went to university. They're all like of means to, to a degree. Um And of all the now-
2: money struggles they talk about, college loans aren't really one of them because it wasn't unaffordable to go to college then.
1: Right. Different time, different different economic times, different factors at play. You know, you didn't have to. There was no concept of the hustle, the grind, yeah. uh, having to do things on the side or, or monetize your passions. Like that's not part of the conversation in this film because yeah. 1994 was a very different, different time and place. Yeah. I mean,
0: and- Winona Ryder <clears throat> has to... St- has to kind of uh, struggle with whether she wants to accept this used car from her dad or not.
1: A BMW, right. <laughs> like <laughs> yeah, the tragedy, right? The absolute tragedy. Uh, and it's easy to kind of see. Like, I kind of figured I would rewatch this again as like a very old lady and be like, "Well, Ben Stiller is clearly going to be like the logical choice," but I, I, I kind of totally get it. Right? She's twenty three years old. Who's going to pick? Ben Stiller over Ethan Hawke. You're not. No way. You just won't. Ben Stiller is in the car listening to uh to Peter Frampton's "Baby I Love Your Way," the most a cover uncool of a cover. The most right. uncool
2: song ever. A cover of the, the most, most uncool un- song that was so, so like, deeply overplayed in the '70s that even by the '90s people knew that that was code for this guy's not
1: cool. Right. Exactly. There's no contest. Yeah. From yeah, that and
0: they, or right. they even reference it again in High Fidelity where they're watching marita sal at the club and she's covering it and they're like oh i don't like this song but i kind of like it when she does it yeah
2: (laughs) i mean we can do i didn't pick high fidelity because i saw that you guys had already done it but man i could rip that whole movie apart
1: (laughs) so easily we already (laughs) have (laughs) we already have yeah for anyone that hasn't listened to the podcast um to that podcast yeah if you want to hear us rip high fidelity apart (laughs) Uh, But I think this touches on like talking about uh,
2: the baby I love your way of it all and I'm sure we'll get to uh, my Sharona shortly that a lot of the songs on the soundtrack are not from the 90s which is an an interesting thing. I was thinking about that when you're talking about what became the lead single when they just sent the soundtrack out and I'm like well there are several songs that are already out of the running because they came out Two decades ago, or 10 years ago, or were already a single previously, like that YouTube mm-hmm. song, like the Lenny Kravitz song. So nobody was going to pick those. <laughs> those were all not options.
1: Right. My Corona by the Knack is distinctly an 80s song, but there is a lot of, from the sitcoms that they're watching to the songs that they're sort of um, invested in, there's a little bit of backwards looking nostalgia to the 70s and 80s. And a lot of schoolhouse
0: be- rock sing alongs. <laughs>
1: Schoolhouse Rock, like she's singing along to Schoolhouse Rock when she said, I'm just a bell, which is, is very relatable. The Sharona moment. I arguably like kind of the most iconic music moment from this film. It's probably what people associate the most with the, the film itself. I think so. It's also my least favorite music
2: moment in the film. It's just that song is bad. That is not a good song. And I didn't I've always wondered why I've, I don't know the story. So if you guys do tell me what was the process of picking that song? Because it's fine for where it is and it works in the moment. But it's just there are so many good. I think that song's actually from 79. And there's so many good, like cheesy ass rock songs from that era. Why, <laughs> why that one?
0: I don't know if I have the story for exactly why they picked the song, but I know that the soundtrack came out on RCA Records and Ben Stiller and Karen Rockman, who is a soundtrack supervisor, they met with RCA and RCA said like, hey, here's our catalog of, of artists, like choose whoever you want for your soundtrack and they chose the rap song by Me Phi Me. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And everything else is not from RCA Records. Which
2: by the way, that would not happen, like 10 years later, that wouldn't have been allowed to happen. It would have been 90% songs from whoever was the label putting it together because they would own the masters and not wanna pay the licensing fees on everything else. And then, you know, maybe you get one or two from somebody else.
0: Yeah, they picked the one song and it's like <laughs> the least <laughs> consequential artist yeah. out of the whole soundtrack. <laughs>
2: That is truly a once one time only never again would that happen moment. I always
1: took the my Sharona moment to be um it, it, like it, you don't have to like it, but you kind of have to acknowledge that it's catchy. It's kind of like Mickey. You may not be listening to it recreationally. It may not be your favorite song, but it's an earworm, and everybody knows it. So if it were to come on and you're like, hi in the gas station convenience store, it would conceivably be something that you would ask the guy behind the counter to turn up and then, like, ironically dance. To.
3: Oh, yeah.
2: This is some seriously ironic dancing. They're making fun of it as much as they're enjoying it. Let's also exactly. talk about the sort of undertones the me too of my Sharona. That song is about yes. an underaged girl. <laughs> that song is about wanting to date
0: a high schooler.
1: So that's fun.
0: Speaking of beautiful girls, our last episode. <laughs> <laughs>
1: We can't talk anymore about wanting to date teenagers on this podcast. I think like, there's a moratorium now. on that. I, I want to talk about, though, like my my favorite music moment is the sort of opening scene of the movie um, where they're driving to Attempted by Squeeze. Yeah. And she flicks a cigarette into Ben Stiller's car and causes an accident. And that's their that's their cute Um I had forgotten how much, like, as a young girl child, I really liked this song. I don't know why, I just really liked it. I think it's, it's got, like, very simple sing-alongable lyrics about, it's... like, toothbrushes and shit.
2: Yeah, like, Squeeze is one of those, another coded band where they're just, like, below the mainstream enough in British pop music in the 80s that it's, like, a wink to be in cool if you catch that and you know them and you know that song. Um, and the other artist like that in this film is crowded house they have two songs in yep. here and i am That's such nice. a huge neil finn fan um yeah there's something like whenever ben stiller's trying to make a happy world he goes to artists like that i would arguably say the big mountain song the world party mm. song or that also these sort of nice confections but he digs a little deeper than the most obvious thing. Um, it's not what you'd expect. All of that, to me, adds up to make the soundtrack a really mixed bag of stuff. Like, it doesn't make sense as a soundtrack. It makes sense within the, the world of the movie. But That's when up. you put it on an album, it's just like, and what? What do we have here? What is this? What is this collection of songs? Why do they go together? I'm not sure. I've yeah, I really
0: oh sorry i believe the guy from world party also scored the movie
2: yes i think you're right and the guy from world party has do we know his? like do you guys know his whole background he's from the water boys the hole of the moon that band they're such a great like also an underground 80s band and he um helped record Sinead o'connor's first album he was like an engineer or producer on it he's a very cool guy <laughs> very cool guy
0: and Robbie Williams covered one of his songs and got to number one in the u k charts.
2: Ah, that's nice. I love that. Love that for Robbie Williams. But yes, that is a cute, a cute, meat, cute song, I agree. Like that is a it makes it into such an earworm because it's such a promising moment, a weirdly promising moment.
1: Yeah, no, I I love it. It's it's a it's a great little tune, underrated little tune. I'm gonna go out on a limb and say I also really love "Crowded House." And I love um, my parents when I was a kid used to have a one of those like jukeboxes that had like you know the neon lights around it, and it's you know half oval shape, right? You guys know, like a classic looking jukebox, but on the inside, it was retrofitted to play CDs. And so I remember it was retrofitted to play CDs, but they weren't like cool CDs. They were like Garth Brooks and, you know, (laughs) things that like as a kid, I was probably not automatically drawn to. But they did have the very best of Crowded House. And I remember just enjoying the shit out of Crowded House as a kid because it was the best thing in that jukebox.
2: I did not appreciate them at the time. This is like something about them popped off for me when I got older. And now I've been to see Crowded House and Neil Finn solo so many times
1: that it's embarrassing. Wow. No, <laughs> it's not embarrassing. I think I think they're great. Um, and I think they don't. They don't get discussed enough for, for being great. I think because they're just like, as you said, kind of like a little under the radar, a little lower key.
2: Than I'm not a lot of bands.
1: Yeah. Of- I'm not sure
2: I'm ready to say Ben Stiller is cool, but I will say, like, Ben Stiller gets it. Like, Ben Stiller knows ben Stiller what's up.
1: <laughs> gets it. Like, ben, ben, I feel like Ben Stiller, I, I can relate to Ben Stiller's personal brand of cool because it's not like it's not a showy kind of cool, but he definitely gets it. He knows how to put together a film. Um, I, I appreciate the work that he did to put a lot of this stuff together.
0: Yeah, and this is his directorial debut. Mm-hmm.
1: Pretty amazing.
2: I mean, it's a solid, solid first movie. A lot better than, let's say, Wes Anderson's first movie or even Richard Linklater's
1: first movie.
0: <laughs> and I think, as a director, he's got a pretty good track record.
2: Yeah, he does. I mean, Severance was amazing. Derek was so obsessed with it.
0: Okay. Yeah, he did the pilot, right? Or, oh,
2: he did the whole series.
0: Oh, he did the whole series? I, I know he did the pilot. I wasn't aware that he did the whole thing, was
2: very involved, <laughs> like to a degree If I heard things were weird. So, um, I think there's also a cute moment with Ben Stiller and Winona when they're in the car and the big gulps and baby, I love your way is on. I actually, that for me almost redeems the song because of like the awkward cuteness and the hopefulness that she has there and the like juggling the big gulp cup to be able to kiss some guy in his convertible. It feels very like a princess moment. And then she gets bumped back down to real life immediately in her apartment when she encounters Troy, her, the love of her life or the love of her 20s, perhaps.
1: Yeah, I mean, that moment makes you think that maybe these crazy kids are going to make it like maybe she can be, you know, maybe they can merge their two worlds. But, you know. Then you also kind of realize by the end, like, no, she's just kind of like, it's tourism for her. Like, she's just yeah. kind of, you know, testing that out as you do at 23.
0: So the screenwriter is uh, Helen Childress. And I guess she went to college with a guy named Troy Dyer. And he ended up suing the producers.
2: <laughs> oh, I didn't know this.
0: Yeah. he had So he sued because, you know, I guess he is a film financier and... You know people would be like oh so troy dyer like the reality bites troy dyer so he sued oh. the producers and helen childress and um it wasn't resolved until like she gave him like a written like letter to say like okay. i did not base this character off of you
2: <laughs> and did he then frame it and hang it in his office like what do you do with that that's hilarious
0: yeah i assume he like would laminated and bring it to his meeting. He's like, I am not the Troy from Reality Bites. I have it in writing.
2: <laughs> wow. The good news is he's now totally ungoogleable. And that is... A- he sounds
0: more like a Michael than he does a Troy. He does sound more like a
2: Michael.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that sounds true. Yeah. But speaking of Troy, what what do we think of um, Ethan Hawke's abilities as a vocalist and uh, his his fake band hey that's my bike let's talk about hey that's my bike well i i
0: also think it's kind of uh interesting that a few years ago he did a movie called juliet naked
1: <laughs>
0: i'm not sure if you guys are familiar with that movie oh yeah and I almost yeah. feel like that is like troy like 20 years later
2: oh yeah i mean it's a nick hornby novel
1: so yeah it is Absolutely. Yeah. I feel like there's a there's a whole Ethan Hawke like interconnected universe <laughs> in the same way that like Phoebe Waller-Bridge has her own like universe of people that she's like anyway. I could go on, but it's not going to make a lot of sense. Uh, Maya Hawke is now like a singer songwriter in her own right. His daughter Maya Hawke. So um, I like her stuff. I think she's I a do great too. voice.
2: Um, okay. She, hey, that's top. my bike. Maybe one of the worst band names ever. Definitely top 10. No so bad is so bad definitely top 10 and um his voice is not good in this movie i think <laughs> he gets some vocal training later in life but this was not uh this band is i think it's not supposed to be good though because we're supposed to know this band is not going anywhere they're not leaving yes. houston they're not getting yeah. a record deal not even sub pop is interested like it's just not happening
0: <laughs> his vocals in this movie are as good as his mandarin accent in moon Knight.
2: No. <laughs> <laughs> oh okay. Shots fired. So but we have to talk about the violent femme song that he sings, yes. which is some, that that moment watching it now as an adult, like I got it, like it's a punishment. And I felt that was, you know, defensible when I was young because I was stupid. Watching it as an adult, I'm just like, that's the moment you never talk to that person again. That is the oh, like. Yeah. Uh, no,
3: we're
2: done. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's the perfect.
0: darling Nikki moment of this movie.
2: Oh, yeah, it's just humiliating. I mean, it, there's something really humiliating about discussing your sex life with someone from the stage and pointedly making it clear who you're singing about. And this is the kind of like the kind of insult that women got in the '90s. This stuff is deeply unacceptable now but this was like the madonna horror complex put on blast for the 90s um so it's also like a really unique song in the i mean in the violent Femmes uh, catalog to me because most of their stuff is not like this it's not this kind of aggressiveness It's a little darker
1: mm-hmm well, I think the moment in the film, too, like Ethan Hawk isn't singing it so much. as just spitting it. Yeah. It's vicious. It's pretty
2: vicious when they do it, too. Like, it's not
1: a polite song. It's not like, yeah, not cool. For sure. And you only get like five, ten, I don't know, 10 seconds of it. You don't get a lot of it. But you get enough of it to know like, wow, this is a, a very, this is a very cruel put down
2: So this is the point where I start to question the whole friend group. So Janine Garofalo is also in this movie and Steve's on. They have the best scenes together. I also think they get like the best music together. (laughs) I think everything, every time they're in a scene, the music's great. But do they not hear about this moment and grab her and be like, okay, that was, that was really messed. Like, you know, that was messed up, right? And you don't have to talk to him anymore. Like, we can kick him out of our friend group. He can be over.
1: But no. Yeah, it's it's tough. Like, they really don't make any concerted attempt to cancel him at any point in this film. He's just kind of, like, accepted in the way that I think you accept when you're in your early 20s and the stakes are lower, like, people really fucking up. And, but you they can stay in the friend group as long as, you know, whatever. Nobody's, like, permanently maimed. Is yeah. sort of how I... I took it. Yeah. Um, but it's bad. I also found myself, speaking of Janine Groffalo and Steve Zahn, who are both fantastic, um, I really found myself wanting, like, their spinoff. Like, they don't get enough in this movie. And
2: they have the richest backstory. Like, I mean, it, no. makes, it makes sense. We're going to focus on the romance. That's what we did. It's a rom-com. We do that. But I agree with you. I would love just a, a second movie about where they go.
1: Right?
0: And you might get it because they're developing a Reality Bites TV series now.
1: Oh, oh no. Who, I don't know if I want it.
2: Which network? Who's doing it? Do uh, we
0: Peacock.
3: Oh, no, no it's I don't in want your
2: face. it. I'm not sure I want it. No, it's not in your face. And look, you're just lucky it's not MTV Networks, right? MTV Networks is not the studio behind it, right? Tell me they're not.
0: I don't think so because this movie, it's technically a universal film, I think.
2: Okay, then, yeah, it'll just be the Peacock universe. Well, maybe. I don't know. They've had a few things. It's, it's pretty hit or miss over there.
1: Mm. I oh, know. I don't know. The, the charm of this film, though, you take it away from the backdrop of 1994, and I'm pretty sure it loses anything that made it good. Um, I'm not really into, like, next generation type of things like this, so we'll see, but... I think it's our relation, like, so much of this movie to me is about
2: selling out uh-huh. and do I or don't uh-huh. I, and that is not a concept that exists any. Like, authenticity is just not the same as it was in 1994. I'm not saying right. that's a good thing or a bad thing, but we live in a world where people aspire to be influencers now, and that's also not a good thing or a bad thing. It just is. We, we live well, in a world where the majority of money is controlled by corporations who now are legally recognized as people. So I mean, nobody has any choice but to sell out at this point, like there's not a lot of homegrown stuff happening. So unless a reality bites reboots is like a reboot is somebody trying to open a flower shop in their hometown. (laughs) I mean, I don't know what it would be like, what, what are you protecting? What is the, what would be the point? And if you take it away from that premise, how is it reality bites?
1: Yeah, it's so true. I don't know how you do that unless they're going back to the 90s and it's a period piece or something. But but yeah, if I don't get to see like a pre-9-11 airport, I don't want it. (laughs) I mean, the outfits.
2: It's really another thing I was thinking about when I was going back and watching this is how much people have stayed obsessed with the 90s. And we haven't really, we're maybe in 2000s nostalgia now, maybe, but Mostly it's criticism. I mean, it's criticism about fat phobia and sexism and racism from that era, whereas we don't seem to think about the 90s with that framework, although we certainly should. You um, certainly should, yeah. But the 90s just have stayed pristine. And it's fun to me to go back to this movie from the 90s and remember how real it felt that people were that nostalgic for the 70s then.
1: Yeah, really nostalgic for the 70s. I, this is just a this is a mild tangent, but the, there is a lot of 90s nostalgia right now aesthetically and in fashion. I was at a big Thief show this week and it was outdoors and it was like a picnic, right? So Hollywood Forever if you're familiar with mm-hmm. that, you're from LA. Yeah. Everybody's out there for a picnic. 80% of the young women at this concert were dressed like that meme of Nicole Kidman where she's like just got divorced and she's wearing like the camisole top and like the you know like the <laughs> sort of knee length like slip skirts right yes. but but also a bunch of them have like full-on like thong like whale tails like oh from, god because like, that's the thing again now so oh, no. it's fascinating to me how like The cyclical that is, and the idea that, like you said, it—I think the '90s and and a little bit of the early 2000s, not lead like there, it's kind of preserved in amber in terms of like the, I think people feel that that's the perfectly authentic aesthetic. Like that's that's aspirational right now. That's how everybody wants to like kind of look and be. They want to go to that place where things and people maybe felt a little bit more real, Mm. which is what this movie does, right? Like Winona Ryder and her like very off the rack, like button down diner dresses from the Gap, which you had. um, I think a lot of people find that to be a very comforting place to kind of live. Okay, there's
2: another connection we haven't touched on, a um, star of the movie and band connection, uh, and that is U2 and Winona Ryder. So U2, All I Want Is You plays when she realizes she has to have Troy and she runs romantically to get the greasy haired man with no job. (laughs) <laughs> pan away but doesn't it. that
0: reflect doesn't that reflect her real life where she is dating dave partner from soul asylum
1: yes like that was always who was also, also in the
0: movie who was also in the movie who was also
1: in the movie listen we knew his dating history though like fascinating incredible speaking of just jeff dead. Tweedy,
3: <laughs>
1: great run <laughs> like just every every guy who was in a cool
2: band but so I don't know that you two ended up on the soundtrack because of her, but I know she was involved in, like, getting them to say yes because she's been friends with them and considers Bono, like, a father figure. And I've read Red something flag. about this. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I read something about this in a, <laughs> a an interview with Courtney Love where Courtney's like, Winona took me to... My first U two concert and like just everybody knew her, the band knew her, and they revered her. And she could do anything and could do no wrong. And that's literally what it's like to be anywhere with Winona Ryder. I was like, yeah, that sounds about right.
1: That tracks. Did she did Courtney Love throw shoes at the edge? Um, she like I don't think so. I think this was during her
2: Malibu era, so she was being the most civilized oh. version of Courtney
1: Love.
3: It's
1: good, it's a good era. <laughs> um. Anyway. Yeah, so I I'm, I'm a very vocal. I feel like I've been very vocal on this show about not being a huge YouTube fan, but and maybe it's coming off of Beautiful Girls and feeling like this film is just such a like breath of fresh air. But the <laughs> montage <that we> speak <laughs> of at the end, right, um, where she's pining for him and and he's pining for her, and there are pre nine eleven airports and paythongs and payphones. planes and <laughs> chain smoking right so Um, much smoking there's so much smoking smoking. in this movie and it's just all like smoking in this movie i don't even smoke and just
0: regular cigarettes not even weed
1: yeah no people are just
0: smoke just everybody
1: is smelly
2: and it's very it hops off the screen at you how smelly all of these 23 year
1: olds are no sure this movie is like pungent like it feels like being in the smokiest shittiest dive bar because there's so much smoking but this montage scene, U2's All I Want Is You is playing over it. Um, I had two thoughts on this. One, I kind of remembered how much I actually do like this song. I actually think it's kind of like top tier U2. Yeah. I think it's a great song. It's a great song. Um, and I can't I can't deny it. I think it's a great song. U2 wrote this song for his wife. I feel like it maybe means a little more than some U2 songs. I mean, not the ones that are, you know, like about Ireland, right? Like it's, it's not just, the political wins, just the other the emotions that you it. think U2 doesn't have. <laughs> right, exactly. Like, you know, corporate U2. It's not corporate U2. It's like pre that. It's a nice song. It's a great ballad. Um, but I also wondered to myself, why didn't they put Lisa Lowe's day here? Because
0: mm. to take Troy's shirt out of her laundry, the U2 is much a much better choice than Lisa Lowe's.
1: <laughs> That part is like, she's like, Exactly, <laughs> what you said? Like she goes to run after like the greasy haired, unemployed man. And I think you really get hit by that when she pulls his dirty ass boxer shorts, like out of her, out of her own pants because she's doing laundry. Oh yeah. I mean, why didn't they put stay in it? Because I feel it like worked too. First of all, I think if they're w- within the reality
2: of this reboot of Reality Bites, um, I want to see the Laney character on tiktok complaining about this this behavior yeah, so, so. that was somehow endearing then and now is literally what would make you go viral um but second i think because you 2 is a much more cinematic band like that song the the climax the way that it ramps up um musically like the edge is guitar specifically it's just so much more compelling and it's A lot of soundtracks from the 90s do this, where they tell you how you should feel with the music. And my impression is that Ben Stiller really wanted you to feel, in case you weren't sold on this pair, we're going to have this song drive up and your heart is going to swell in this moment because there is a chance you're not sold on the sky. <laughs> and I don't know that like Lisa Lopez is a little too soft, it's pretty, but there's no real climactic well, driving well. moment in that song that makes you feel like this is imperative, this is imminent, this is, it has
1: to happen now. So much so it's that I It's will... too understated, it's too understated. You're right, say what you will about you 2 and I have, to be, <laughs> but they are a very cinematic band. Yeah, we,
0: we have a whole Patreon episode about Nicole explaining the plot of Sing 2 to me.
1: Oh, wow, okay. That's pretty Fine. deep for those... deep cuts there, dudes. Yeah, well, I mean, I for those that have never seen Sing 2, Bono uh, plays a prominent role.
0: Um, Amazing tweet about that is when they announced their Las Vegas residency, someone said, I didn't know Sing 2 was a biopic. So.
1: <laughs> 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 So look, that makes like three people that it was thing to
2: laugh. I'm sorry. My my history with U2 is um complex. I don't have one solid opinion, but I understood them a little better after. So I moved away from New York in 2015. And one of my good friends was like, look, the last thing we're gonna do is U2's playing at Madison Square Garden. And I'm friends with one of their managers. So we're going to get really good tickets and go. And that's going to be the last concert you go to. And I was like, wow, okay, that's, that feels good. And we did. And I mean, the tickets were amazing. And I, I, even the manager, even like held out earplugs for me. He's like, have you, you haven't been to a YouTube show before, right? Okay you're going to need these because we were on the floor and he was right. I mean, I did need them. And then Bruce Springsteen came out and did the encore with them. Like it was epic. And, but seeing it and kind of seeing behind the scenes a little more made me understand the machinery that is U2. Like it's not just a band, it's a business in the same way that the Rolling Stones are or Zeppelin would have been. Um, So it's bigger than just I love 80s U2, but it's so much, they got so much bigger than that. And even post 9-11 U2, I remember I was working at MTV when all of those like songs, um, to make you happy because the world is depressed, uh, album videos came in and it felt inauthentic, but it also felt like maybe we kind of need this. Um, so yeah, like, I don't have, I don't love all of it either, but there are some things I really do love. And there even have been some later catalog things I've come to love, like City of Blinding Lights. Like, how do you not feel great listening to that song? It's just very, I don't know, Bono is in love with the world sometimes and you just have to take it at face value. Like, but it, it is interesting. This is a 90s U2 song, which is maybe their, one of their most loathed periods. And somehow it works. Somehow this song just really, really works.
1: Yeah, it works for me too. And I, you know, if I were Bono, I, I I don't begrudge him feeling good, right? I would also feel happy if I had multiple casts.
0: And, yeah. and you got to think about, <laughs> and you got to think about it as a first-time director, Ben Stiller. Are you really going to take the risk of unsigned, unknown Lisa Love? Are you going to well, stick you two with first-time
2: there? director Ben Stiller? If you two says, "Yeah, we'll let you use our song at an affordable yeah. rate for your like ten million dollar budget movie." Are you going
1: to say no to that? Yeah. You'd be crazy. It's, I think in my brain, it's it's like some kind of, you know, like a, it's some kind of Mandela effect sort of thing where I'm like, I expect Stay to be in the movie and it's not technically in the movie. Well, and it so feels like the one place
2: that might. Here's stay. the thing. This was also something that was different about movies in the 80s and the 90s. The biggest song and the song that was a single was always the song that was over the credits. For whatever reason, it was mm-hmm. rarely in Bro. the movie. It was always at the end maybe because people actually stayed to watch the credits back then i mean it was a thing um but yeah that was a place of honor like that was a very um a a wanted placement true it feels like a throwaway now because we don't even watch the credits on tv shows like well nobody's watching the end of the movie.
1: One of my complaints with streaming, though, is that it it Im- automatically kicks you to the the next thing that's on right. a lot of platforms. So oftentimes you don't even really get to. If you watch this on Peacock, they're already kicking you to the next thing on Peacock. So yeah, you don't get you, you have
0: to you have to intentionally say no. I want to watch the
2: credits. Yeah,
1: that's right. Right. If you walk away to go like grab a Lacroix, like I did, <laughs> you are not going to get to enjoy, um, the yeah the tones of Lisa Lope. Yeah, you're just going to get kicked
0: (laughs) to episode one of Reality Bites, the TV show. Uh,
1: (laughs) We thought you might
2: like beautiful girls. Oh, God. (laughs) I mean, it's not an incorrect assumption, let's be honest, but um, in 1996. Not so much in 2023.
0: Uh, So the soundtrack supervisor, her name is Karen Mm -hmm. Rackman, and she was pretty uh prolific in the 90s she did soundtrack supervision for a lot of Tarantino stuff Reservoir Dogs and um wow. Pulp Fiction also Judgment Night <laughs> and Clueless so I feel <laughs> oh, like she Clueless. had
3: a
2: really good run there okay. yeah. interesting I mean so this is the thing <laughs> 90s soundtracks Clueless Lake is another one where there's a lot of songs not from the 90s and a mix of music that doesn't make sense and it's because in part, it's because they would use songs to like define who a character is. And the whole, with these I... disparate, like the whole uh, the whole trope of the 90s was like, this person who's like this and this person who's completely different clash together and then fall in love or then start a business or then, you know, get into a shootout on Christmas night, whatever. Um, but making that into a soundtrack where songs are character profiles as much as they're anything else or they're putting you letting you know you're in the gap now and that's why crowded house is playing um it it makes for such a weird soundtrack and so many soundtracks from the 90s are totally incongruent because of that sort of music placement theory
0: yeah the clueless is like coolio boston's radiohead
2: (laughs) (laughs) that boss tones plays at the party scene in clueless
1: by the way is the weirdest thing ever that's so like i I don't understand (laughs) why. why? (laughs) No, you're right though. It's it's not the like intentionally curated soundtrack of say like Hunger Games Mm -hmm. or like Twilight, where I feel like they put all this thought into like how are these songs going to be all like commercially viable? There's or like what age is
0: our audience? So what are they listening to now?
1: Exactly. It feels very market researched, right? Like this doesn't feel that way. This feels very much like no. This is what worked for the film, and as you said, Courtney, like the coveted spot ends up being that title song because that's the one thing that doesn't need to be considered as, as part of the story. That's right.
2: You can go with your strongest song that has absolutely nothing to do with the movie in that spot.
0: So um, speaking of Stay, so Lisa Loeb went to Brown. Yeah. And she uh, went to college um, with both Duncan Sheik who had some songs of his own.
2: Very smooth, smooth voice guy of the 90s.
0: I think barely breathing is still a bop. I agree. And then um, Elizabeth Mitchell, who uh, later formed the band Ida. Oh,
2: okay. Hmm. I'm only surprised that Lisa Loeb didn't go to Oberlin. Frankly. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Liz Fair did though. I know Liz Fair did. Only only one can come from Oberlin. <laughs> yeah, so they they played together in college. Elizabeth Mitchell and Lisa Loeb. Elizabeth Mitchell <laughs> actually does backing vocals on Stay, okay. and she is now a uh, I guess a very successful children's uh songwriter.
2: That's always a weird path to go down.
0: And I think Lisa Loeb has actually gone into that. She has. Uh,
2: she does books that, and albums, well. I think. Yeah.
0: And also random cameos on nostalgic grab shows like Fuller House.
2: <laughs> oh that's right. I I forgot that I saw that.
0: <laughs> yeah it it's funny how much po how much staying power stay has had. Like, they use it, like, in an episode of Workaholics, like, a bunch, and then she shows up at the end of that episode, and um, I think New Found Glories, they did, like, a a second covers record, and they did that song, and she does vocals on that as well so
2: so when newfound glory was ripping off me first in the gimme give they did elisa song. songs what you're telling me that's like so on the second volume from so once, cool. it, <laughs> on once the they realized
0: <laughs> that it was like a, a viable commercial thing for them they did Neat. a second volume and they did stay on that one
2: <laughs> right and that guy's divorced from Haley from paramore is that right
0: Oh, I don't know. Yeah. Really?
2: Isn't that who she married? The guy from... No, maybe it's not Newfound Glory. Oh, Anyway, they seem uncool. forty 41 or something. No, that's, no, Avril. that's Avril. Avril <laughs> married. But, yeah, lots of bad Some taste 41 there. to Nickelback.
3: Mm.
2: <laughs> Can I don't know, Canadians. Like, you can't, like, make sense. It's not the same. There's no accounting for...
0: <laughs> so. Tell so, us more um, about stay.
2: I need to know. Tell me what, what did stereo gums do a number ones about it? Or did they do a, we have a, yeah, they, on You"?
0: yeah, they did a, uh, the number ones on it. Okay. So it's uh, Tom Briahan.
2: Okay. Tell me what Tom said. I know that this was, I, I, I remember it was not, she didn't have an album and she wasn't signed when this came out. So she got a record deal from this. And she's the first artist to get onto the Billboard charts without a record deal, which seems insane. Like, how had that never happened before? Well, first
0: to get to number one without a record deal. To number
2: one. Okay, okay. Which is pretty remarkable. Like, in the 90s, you had to sell a lot of copies of something to get to number one. That was tough. Like, people were still buying albums then, so that was no easy feat.
0: Yeah, and, you know, and I, Tom Brehan points out that you know, like a lot of the bands like Pearl Jam and Nirvana, like their labels were not releasing singles because they wanted to push people to buy albums. So, you know, like even Smells Like Teen Spirit, like um I think that peaked at like number 6.
2: Wow, that's so wild.
0: Uh so the producer of Stay is was uh, Lisa Loeb's boyfriend at the time. His name is Juan Patino. Okay. And he actually also produ- produced, he also produced Jewel's You Were Meant For Me.
2: You know, those are not, those are not dissimilar tonally, like aesthetically as songs and artists. Right. Yeah. Although I never really liked Jewel. And I did like Lisa Loeb. I don't know what that means.
0: It means you weren't from Alaska. (laughs) Maybe I just
2: don't like blondes. No offense. No, I'm just kidding. I
1: don't know. (laughs) Maybe it doesn't mean anything. Guys, my hair in the bathroom really quickly. (laughs) and wrote that. (laughs) I had no choice but to like Jewel. It, it's an era thing, maybe, too. Mm-hmm. I feel like she was forced upon me in <laughs> cereal boxes and warehouse video stores. And You're not incorrect. I just wasn't. There was really no other alternative.
0: I think it was last winter. So Greg Kirsten and Dave Grohl have been doing this Hanukkah session series.
2: Okay. That seems like um, the most L.A. thing. That's the most L.A. way to start a sentence I've ever heard.
0: um and last year they did a cover of stay but they did like a metal version of it
2: oh that sounds really cute i would love that
0: Uh, i'll find it i'll send it to you
2: so there's one other song in this soundtrack i wanted to talk about okay it's the first song that plays um when we're in the montage and opening credits and it's gary glitter's rock and roll part two
1: (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which is used on a lot of movie soundtracks yes it is, <laughs> yes, it is. i mean
2: another problematic person obviously <laughs> making Extremely. their way onto the soundtrack but also a part of why this immediately resonated with me was because it wasn't just on movie soundtracks that was also at every sporting event you went to yes. in the 90s and my high school band played it a ton and i by band i mean marching band um so i played that every friday night for about three years straight and i this was i was literally in high school when this movie came out so i was just like oh yeah this is very true to houston not realizing that that phenomenon extended beyond that but it just really bolstered my idea that this was an authentically houstonian
1: movie (laughs) why did you play in the in the marching band drums
2: Now, freshman year, it was symbols, though, so, you know.
0: <laughs> yeah, that, that was, like, one of the ultimate jock jams in the 90s before uh, we all realized who Gary Glitter wa- really was.
1: Yeah. I Again, there's a whole other podcast lingering somewhere about how jock jams are really just, like, glam songs from the 70s, which is truly, truly weird to me. Like, so many jock jams are, like, the least jock thing that you could probably... <laughs> But sure.
0: Yeah, I, it, it was many years before I realized that the song had a name, that it was Rock and Roll Part 2. It, it was just the da-da-da-da, hey, da-da-da-da. Mm-hmm.
1: It's the hey song. Yeah. 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 Um, And there's- Eventually
0: replaced by Brohim.
2: <laughs> I don't even, I don't think I've been to a high school football game since 1996, so I don't know what they're doing now. Um. I do know that they play the white stripes though on like the NFL,
1: and I find that weird. So there's also they played the, seven, eight, and soccer eight,
0: games, so? soccer games like across the world.
1: Yeah, well, and that UFC, makes sense. It's a big thing I've heard as well.
2: That 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 makes sense to me. Soccer games for sure. Um, there's also and the also two, song too by Blur, which is also I mean that makes sense of soccer. Yes, and I love it. Um, I love that for Blur. I hope Damien Albarn is rich off of just that. Um, so, I mean, he's rich
0: for many different reasons.
2: <laughs> I guess gorillas exist, whatever. Um, so, there's also the two songs that play whenever Winona's character is checking out In Your Face TV. And they're um, impossibly cool. And they both have a really kind of funny backstory. And one of them is Arrested Development um, Give a Man a Fish which is not a video that really got played on MTV much because MTV was still segregating hip-hop into Yo! MTV Raps, and that's about it at that time after dabbling with um, gangster rap in the late 80s and getting in a lot of trouble for it. And the other one is um, Arise by Sepultura, and that video was actually banned by MTV um, because someone was nailed to a cross in it and I guess it was too controversial for the standards department to play it. You'd be amazed. So I went to, I like got a lot of feedback from standards at MTV in my day as well. And because it's a channel that was, um, a primary part of the audience was under 18 and under 13, the standards were even higher. Like Disney was the same and Nickelodeon, um, they were even tougher about, and there was a lot of day parting what videos would play. So like headbangers ball wasn't just on late at night because that's when metal people watch tv or because they were pushing it to a late time because nobody liked it it was because those videos were often very explicit and they needed it or the imagery was controversial and they needed it to air late at night
0: yeah i remember the prodigy video for smack my bitch up had to Uh debut at like midnight On like a Sunday night. But that was cool
2: how they did that. Like they they made it an event. It was like we can't play this, but we're running promos for it, so you know we can't play it. Like by the nineties, MTV was kind of hip to that game
1: right for sure i thought i was too hot for tv yeah i was gonna ask that though like how much of it was standards and practices how much of it was them knowing that if we promote something late at night that's like quote unquote banned we know we're gonna find more traction for it it's gonna Mm -hmm. be like an object of fascination
2: well i'll tell you this story um so when jay-z brought in the video for 99 problems standards gave him a bunch of edits to it and he was like no, I'm not not doing any of those. I'm not making any of those edits. Don't don't play it. And interviews, like, I mean, I was I was one of the people. I was like, we can't do that. We can't not play the new Jay-Z song. What? So it becomes a thing where you find a way to make it work, where it's like, OK, if we leave all of this in, what day parts can we play it in? When can when will it be acceptable? And then you promote that.
0: Before we continue with our episode, here's a word from our sponsor.
1: Enjoy listening to podcasts and ever wonder, can I make a podcast? But it seems so complicated and good audio production can take time. What if there was a way to create an amazing podcast easily? Well, now there is. Introducing Podcasting Made Easy from Podtastic Audio. My production team will handle your entire audio production, allowing you to be the star of your show. This is podcasting made easy. How easy? Well, so easy, you don't even have to press record. Now that's easy. Your listeners are waiting. Let's deliver. Sign up for a free strategy call today at podtasticaudio.com slash easy.
2: Wait, no, you hadn't seen Reality Bites before this. Uh, I hadn't seen it before this. Yeah, yeah. So, so what was... did you end up thinking? What are your takeaways here?
0: Um, I really enjoyed it. I thought it was I think for being almost 30 years old, I think it is something I can still relate to. Like I think if I had seen this like the day I graduated college, it would it would have defined too much of my 20s. <laughs> I mean, you
2: know? her her parents, that dinner with her parents is the most Like, boomers are still like that. That's a very just uh, boomers moment.
0: (laughs) Just that opening image of her mom, like, cutting the meat for her husband.
2: (laughs) Dad, stop talking to mom like she's a child. Well, she married one.
0: Yeah, that was a great line.
2: It's not wrong.
0: No. The only, like, major thing with the movie that I kind of don't like is just Ethan Hawke's kind of 90s I'm kind of an asshole and that makes me kind of deep sort of thing that was going on you know it's kind of the same thing with like high fidelity and what Mm they're trying to do with beautiful girls like oh they're assholes because they're damaged and they're deep or something like it's kind of shorthand for like this is gritty and real
1: I went in wanting to you know not like his character but the really unfortunate roadblock to that is that he's hot he's sexy yeah sorry Like, I get it because I'm like, yeah, well, obviously. And there's also that
2: moment when he and Winona are like, he's fired from the newsstand and they're walking and talking and talking about their friendship. And he seems so open and sincere. And it's just that thing where, especially in your twenties, you were so susceptible to guys that give you those moments of vulnerability without realizing that is like 10% of the time with them and the other 90%, they're terrible.
1: Right. You're living for that uh, 10% of oxygen they give you with these, you know, yeah. very like erudite kind of conversations that you're not getting from uh, the Ben Stiller types in your life. So I understood it. I did, like I get it in the world of the film. I feel like it works. Do I feel like that couple is going to last? No, Probably
2: not. but that's a great 20s romance. Here's the thing. We always talk about this as should she have chosen him or him? There's never been a point where we come to a revisionist conversation where we say, Why didn't she just choose herself and her art and screw both of these guys? She actually doesn't need either of them. She's or just hanging out with Janine
0: and
1: <laughs> like, Steve Zahn. Exactly. But right. I'd, right. Because she actually does have like pretty cool friends yeah. in the form of J- Janine Groffalo and Steve Zahn's characters. So she could live a, a very happy life as an auteur. <laughs> Which is what I, I kind of hope the next chapter would be if they were to ever like revisit this. But this is not a before sunrise type of situation, Ethan Hawke film, where we're going to find out like what happens. next. Like we're not there is no what happens next, I feel like.
2: You're right. And I think that's kind of unfortunate. I would love for this to be a before sunset, before sunrise trilogy movie, but no.
0: Well, unfortunately, he just disappears too much for it to actually
3: work.
2: well i mean he doesn't even need to be in the second one the second one can be her in her 30s and she and ben still are together now because that didn't work out
1: (laughs) but then we just have like a sex in the city situation where they keep bringing back like all the old boyfriends from whatever I mean, or, or maybe, it becomes a mama but, mia
0: situation where it's like oh, which one's the daddy
1: you know what i mean maybe to that too but i
2: don't dislike either of those i find something very gratifying about revisiting the old boyfriends because i'm so curious about what what did they do did they, they i mean these people don't fall off the, the side of the earth when they stop being in a relationship with the main character there's always something some story there that's interesting and also maybe
0: Colin running maybe like selling have, cars in chicago
1: well when he comes back in the suit there is kind of like the mildest hint of like maybe he's going to be a respectable he's not he definitely became like somebody
0: who
2: worked as a creative director and is the biggest sellout of them all
1: you
0: know any of them nicole
1: (laughs) no i've never met anyone that no (laughs) that like does anybody for my job listen to this no all creative directors are wonderful please keep being <laughs> round of applause uh, The you. copy
2: editor that's what he would be chief copy editor for a brand because
0: <laughs> he actually does know the definition of irony
1: yeah
2: and also eventually gets someone pregnant and has to raise money to support this child
1: yeah that guy's gonna have a just an epic midlife crisis for sure
0: juliet naked juliet
1: naked exactly <laughs> exactly (laughs) yeah and i think again the thing about the characters in this film is that like no matter what the failings of the the writing the directing may be and i'm not saying it has them but i'm saying you know if there are things you object to i don't think you can really deny that the casting is pretty perfect and the people in, in these roles are i'm buying what they're selling yeah which i think is why it became a defining film of its era
2: yeah And as much as I want to follow up, I do really appreciate how much it captures the angst of that era. That's the problem I have with 90s nostalgia is I was so angst-ridden in that it's uncomfortable to revisit it sometimes because it means accessing my teenage self and like the insecurities that came with the overriding cultural cachet of the time and you know, Winona Ryder was the beauty standard and that's, you know, it's exciting to see yourself to put, like grab yourself onto Laney, but it's also like, you'll never be that beautiful. So you're never going to be beautiful. So you'll never get dumped by a total douchebag. So I guess you're going to die alone. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Just some uncomfortable feelings that you yeah. may not want to <laughs> open the closet on. Yeah, I can do that. Jeannie Garofalo, though, is, like, I always, like, That's... she's always kind of, like, relegated to the bit part, to the sidekick, to, like, the supporting character, but she's both, like, legitimately, to me at least, like, beautiful and also yes. just wildly funny and weird and charismatic and magnetic, and I love her. I don't, like, she never, except for, like, that movie about dogs, and I always forget the title the of. The Truth About long.
2: Cats and Dogs. Something, yeah, there you go. Which is. Our title beautifully casted like how did they get such a great cast for such a terrible script movie
1: yeah i like that film because of her Yeah, because yeah. I, I think it's a testament to like what she can do for a film and i think um i think maybe maybe part of that like low-key chauvinism in the 90s is, is they could never figure out like people could never figure out what to do with her
2: well, that she's cast in that movie as the ugly duckling is wild because yeah, she's beautiful. It makes
1: no fucking sense. It, it
2: just is like shorthand for if you're not super aiming for the male gaze and doing whatever to please men, right? You're not right. beautiful. You're not super desirable.
0: I still um, quote yeah. her from the Cable Guy. <laughs>
2: oh. <laughs> well i mean you know this is the era where janine and ben stiller were besties so that's how she ended up in this movie and i think this movie is all the luckier to have her and her weird 70s obsession
0: (laughs) but she has the most depth i think in the whole film
2: yeah the vulnerability of having to having a an AIDS scare is real or you know trying to live out your sexual liberation when people want women to not be liberated that's all really
3: real
0: and having why well, i to talk down to you like i don't want your part-time job at the gap because i've got this dream of mine
1: i was right. fucked up i was like you and ethan hawk deserve each other in this moment because that was really fucked up and also when
2: you're you're so much cooler than your friend and they say some stuff like that to you it's like excuse me <laughs> what <laughs> okay I pay most of the rent here. So why don't you calm down?
0: got to call you out on your $400 psychic bill.
2: Oh my gosh. That was also an amazing moment. So these 900 numbers in the 90s, so real. One year I got, they were all on MTV. Like they were all advertised on MTV. And I called several of them with my cousins um, at our grandparents' house. And for my birthday, I got a birthday card with a, phone bill inside of it that he'd written paid on it. And he was like, that's what you get there this year. This is like $200 worth of calls.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Do you remember which one you called? Was it the, was it Latoya? Was it?
2: It wasn't psychics. It was like the new kids on the block hotline. And there were a bunch of bands that had these 900 numbers aimed at kids, which seems like such a scam.
1: That's so scammy. That would never be. That would not be allowed now. (laughs) So wait, so what happened when you called the new kid's hotline? Like You what just you hear get? a recorded message.
2: So it wasn't worth it. It was very expensive to not talk to anybody.
1: Yeah, don't like that. Yeah. Merlin Knight's going to talk to me for real if I call the hotline. <laughs>
0: <laughs> there was a Simpsons episode about it. Oh, really? Where there's like this pop star named Corey and like Lisa gets addicted to it, but it's just recording.
1: Mm, yeah, the- <laughs> What is it? there's a simpsons episode for everything yeah, yeah.
2: truly and now kids just have social media and they can desperately comment and hope that justin bieber writes back to them or whatever they're doing
0: now. or justin Bieber's social media manager <laughs> yeah <laughs> I-, I liked your post just
2: hope- ah! well i name mean, there are stars that do look at this stuff like taylor swift is aware of who her biggest fans are and she definitely follows what they do online rihanna same thing like these people truly they don't respond necessarily themselves but they are looking and they are seeing some only a few (laughs) only a few so what do we feel like the legacy of the reality bites soundtrack is I mean it's not coolness this is not a cool soundtrack i i think it's interesting that it's a fully also and not a grunge soundtrack like it's not singles
3: it's very indie rock
2: there's a lot of good there's some strong indie rock things that made it to the actual album soundtrack but there's also like dinosaur jr and (laughs) other really good stuff that gets played in the movie um as well as really corporate stuff um, yeah,
0: dinosaur jr is like the closest this gets to grunge
2: right yeah. i think and then with lisa Loeb being the big single like that is not cool it was an interesting story and it always has been and it still is but i don't like there's no cachet to that so i think i've read a lot of retrospective pieces um coming into this and it's There's a lot of critique about the good and the bad of this soundtrack and picking apart how it doesn't make sense. I think people want it to be, people wanted 90s soundtracks to continue to be like John Hughes soundtracks, where they're really soundtracks that are reflective of one person's music taste and that's That's more cohesive and somehow cooler um, and less commercial. Uh that's the thing about all these clueless reality bites all of it it feels weirdly commercial but like misses the mark
0: yeah it's not quite on the same level as like singles where it's like kind of more like of an artistic vision
1: yeah yeah And maybe that is the legacy of the soundtrack and the movie itself is that it's it's more trying to be this window into representation of people's everyday lives and struggles. It's not trying to be something slick or commercial. And in that way, it still does feel really 90s, even if it doesn't include a, a bunch of stuff that is strictly of the time, um, even when it's not of its time, it still feels kind of like a preserved artifact because of the whole 70s, 90s kind of backwards looking connection mm-hmm. because each of these songs feels connected to um, these these very kind of like everyday characters. I, I think that maybe give, gave filmmakers more license to, to do that, to try that instead of trying to create something that was, you know, a, a blockbuster soundtrack mm-hmm. in itself. I feel
2: like this soundtrack is really representative of the musical legacy of the 90s, because in the 80s, we had college rock and college radio, and there was a de- a definitive underground, but... At the same time, like the biggest bands from that underground were on IRS records, which was not, it was an indie label, but it was not a small label. Like the brother of Sting ran, the, or the brother of Stuart Copeland, Miles Copeland ran the label. So it wasn't like they didn't have a ton of money and they had to deal with MCA, but it was like the bar for what selling out was, was just different, like messier. And then the selling out idea becomes really solidified in the nineties. Um, but mainstream alternative rock transitions from being modern rock to alternative and becomes very corporate because it's mainstream. Like it's the biggest, rock radio is the biggest and most influential thing going in the 90s until the end of the decade when it turns into an utter shit show. (laughs) And then in the 2000s, we swing, the pendulum swings again, and it becomes very in vogue to invoke this indie sound that started out as like strokes, white stripes, yeah, yeah, yeahs, and then really quickly becomes softer, more Death Cab and Beach House and things of that ilk. And it, it, it is, a, it is a, a grouping. Like there are people that are in that scene, but it's also just a sound um, that can be grafted onto so many different movies and TV shows. And that, like, that sort of solidifying thing doesn't exist in the 90s other than inside of grunge. So, but music in the 90s is so much more than grunge. Um, So I don't know. I think it's just like this soundtrack is as messy as music was in the 90s. It wasn't one thing. It's not a monolith.
0: It's messy just like the characters' lives.
2: Mm, Just like Troy's
1: hair. (laughs) Troy's greasy hair. Artfully messy. (laughs)
0: Well, uh, thank you, Courtney, for coming on the podcast.
2: Thank you so much for inviting me. I mean, I love this movie, and I really enjoyed talking about it with you
0: both. I enjoyed not hating the movie and making our guest uncomfortable.
1: (laughs) It was a welcome change. Yeah, no, this was was very good. Have you guys had multiple? Is, is it really just beautiful girls, or have you
2: had multiple instances
1: of that well, happening we, lately? We will disagree amongst ourselves sometimes, and that happens, and we're we're used to that. But we're friends, so that's different. Disagreeing with your friend is on um, a completely different plane than disagreeing with your guest because it's like somebody walking into your house and you're like, ah, oh, your fit sucks, get out. <laughs> yeah, true. Brought the wrong beer. <laughs> bye so that if it just felt very uncomfortable and uh yeah we were very apologetic but also very firm that uh, the whole Nelly partner thing was not cool
2: yeah. well then I'm very happy I picked something that didn't make it awkward for an hour plus
0: <laughs> so where can people find songs um, my expert
2: yeah you can find it anywhere you get podcasts everywhere you get podcasts and we have a website at nevermind.fm where you can check out our bookshop.org store where we put all of the things our guests talk about on and transcripts of the show and links to random things that are tangentially related to each episode
0: (laughs) very cool um and as far as social media how how can people find you
2: well, I mean, after this, if you still really want to, I'm the Courtney E. Smith on a lot of platforms. And if you don't find that, well, you weren't, it wasn't meant to be. <laughs>
0: <laughs> uh, and you can find us on Twitter, or we're still going to call it Twitter, at Soundtrack <laughs> underscore your, and Soundtrack Cast on Instagram. And if you want to hear about you Sing2's plot told by our wonderful Nicole Barlow, Uh, that is on our patreon at patreon (laughs) slash i personally will be
2: joining to uh hear that wow
0: (laughs) (laughs) well thanks again courtney um pleasure speaking with you jen Hell has good taste because she recommended you and you did not disappoint
2: well everyone should have the good taste to listen to the every rom-com ever podcast it's great and this one was my favorite now though sorry jen
0: thanks for joining us this week on soundtrack your life make sure to visit our website soundtrackyourlife.net where you can subscribe to the show on
1: apple Podcasts or spotify while you're at it if you found value in the show we'd appreciate a rating or if you simply tell a friend about the show that would help us out too